My name is Yulia Joja, and I'm joined by my colleagues Giselle Donnelly and Dalibu On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about how and why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, this is um, the start to an episode that we are recording on February 23rd um, between us, um, the hosts of this podcast, trying to wrap our heads around what is happening, trying to sum up um, the events on the ground and what that means for the next few days and weeks as we're looking at Ukraine and at Russia. And I was trying to do that um, this morning too. It's a it's a difficult mental exercise with everything that is happening on the ground and that we're hearing. And I was trying to sum up kind of in nutshells what um, my discussion will be also tonight with um, my Georgetown graduate students in the class that I teach on European security. You can guess it's not really fun or easy to um, to look at European security right now. So looking on the ground, and then Giselle and Dalibor, um, as I progress in this, correct me if I uh, leave something important out, as we're looking at the Eastern Front, basically invasion has begun and more is to come. Um, yesterday, we learned um, that the new so-called republics in the Donbass have territorial claims over the entire two oblasts, um, and we are seeing troop movements towards Mariupol. We also kind of know that Russian troops in Belarus are here to stay. We have now confirmed Putin is emotional when it comes to Eastern Europe, something that many of us already knew. And we also know that Russia's vision for Europe and European security confirmed now is less America and more Russia. Um, and so this is what is happening on the Russian side. On the Ukrainian side, to sum up, the parliament has voted for citizens' rights to bear arms. Um, there is a state of emergency. Parents are sending their kids to school with stickers with their blood type. And Zelensky has mobilized um, Ukraine's reserve forces. And they've imposed sanctions. This is Ukraine in a nutshell. And then the West. Um, the West is sending a few more hundreds of troops and a few choppers to NATO's eastern flank. What else? Oh, both the EU and the US are organizing refugee camps on the borders. I heard warnings we might face a similar refugee crisis as in 2015 when Russia bombed Syria and flooded Europe. Uh, it seems from this point of view that we never learned. Um, Nord Stream 2 got suspended but can be restarted anytime. And the Americans have been trying to help Europeans decouple from Russian energy, but Qatar warns that's not going to be possible anytime soon. No idea what to tell Georgetown students when they ask why is Europe still dependent on uh, Russian gas without pointing fingers. They also ask me why there's no talk of European armed forces mobilizing um, at least in defense of EU space. 
Last week, one of them asked me why all Europeans outright say, independent of the topic they're approaching, that they are against an EU army. But let's not even get into that. And then finally, the West has been tweeting fanatically calling for sanctions. Um, we released the first batch, they say. Um, the US sanctioned a few banks, targeted uh, Moscow's sovereign debt. Europe has sanctioned the entire Duma, but not Putin. That's, I guess, a bold move. So turning to you, Dalibor, would you say now from a fellow European to a fellow European that the Europeans are bolder in their sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia than the Americans? I think basically that's that's a, that's a fair characterization. Uh, and the administration is being explicit about uh, trying to keep some space for further escalation going forward. I think the most significant thing that happened yesterday was the suspension of Nord Stream 2. Maybe coming back to the conversation we had with Timothy mm -hmm. Garth and Ash, uh, I'm less concerned about a German reversal on this issue. Uh, you know, it's hard to form consensus around something in Germany, but once that consensus is built, uh, it is very hard to reverse it. And case in point is really the sanctions regime imposed by the EU on on Russia in the wake of of the annexation of Crimea, which still is in place, and there isn't a sort of there has never been really a serious effort to. To, to, to reevaluate it or walk it back. Um, I do have concerns about uh, this um, this notion of sort of gradual escalation of, 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 of sanctions as, as Putin escalates himself further. I understand the theory behind it, right, that you want to have a marginal deterrent effect at every juncture, uh, whereas if you, like, you know, shoot out all your bullets at once, then you'll be giving him essentially an incentive to do more without facing uh, facing consequences. Um, but there are, I guess, two considerations to, to bear in mind. One is uh, really the fact that Putin seems to have made his mind, right? As, as the Secretary of, 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 of Defense of, of the UK said today, he has gone full tonto. And mm -hmm. at that point, there might be no dissuading him with, with additional, junk, uh, additional sanctions. But more importantly, um, I think it's worth just stepping back and thinking about how we got here, right? Like if, sort of, if this sort of theory of, of gradual marginal deterrence is correct, uh, then we shouldn't be in the situation we are in, right? Yeah. Like we're clearly out of equilibrium and, and maybe there is something wrong about about you know that sort of whole theory that is guiding guiding these decisions so so instead about uh, instead of leaving space for further escalation i think it seems more important to be able to signal in a credible way that we are taking this situation seriously and that we are sort of reevaluating you know the past decisions that led to putin's victory in georgia his intervention in in in, in syria annexation of crimea like all all, all these things were none of these things were were deterred by 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 the sort of western 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 moves so, so so i think we have to show that we really mean it and that unfortunately uh involves also imposing costs on ourselves right like if you're going to not just sanction two state-owned quasi banks that play no meaningful role in the russian economy but if you are going to sanction the entire banking sector in a way that ordinary russians and and, and the elite will feel the consequences like that's going to 
uh, have repercussions on, on 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 the stability of, of of the European financial system. If you're going to cut yourself from from Russian energy, that's going to drive up the prices dramatically. Like these are not exactly appealing political propositions, and and it seems to me that the the the, the sort of bet Putin is making is that that we really don't have what it takes to 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 to, to bear those costs. That we're not willing to bear the cost. That that um, seems to me part of the problem too. And I've seen Biden as well as others, um, you know, uh, addressing domestic publics and saying, or the, the domestic public and saying, this will not have major consequences for us. We'll do our best that this doesn't have major consequences, which to me signals exactly what you're saying. I agree with you. We are not there. Um, not even close to where Ukraine is or others in terms of bearing even financial costs, right? Um, with with that in mind, sort of the soft side, the Western soft side of what is happening, let's turn to Giselle, hardcore military expert. Um, you tell us what you're seeing and what you're understanding. How grim is the picture in military terms? Well, uh, before I get to that, I want to say a word in defense of Tonto. Uh, people <laughs> of, of my age will recall the original Tonto as the Lone Ranger's uh, faithful sidekick in seeing that justice was done in the Wild West. It's only since Johnny Depp came along <laughs> that Tonto has become a byword uh, for uh, uh, insanity. So... Um, you know, uh, we could use a lot of the Tonto spirit uh, on our side of the um, uh, uh, of this divide. Um, but to also sort of transition from Dalibor's part, the, if you've decided that economic sanctions are the only arrow that you've got, then yeah. So being uh, you know parsimonious about using them and being terrified of using the last one. Um, is understandable, you know, since we have sort of taken uh, at least military action of the sort that is timely and relevant entirely off the table, that helps actually to undercut the value of sanctions. You know, this is a kind of a water torture, drip, drip response to a crisis that's a tidal wave. So again, you know, we have such a soft bigotry of low expectations for ourselves and for our allies. You know, everybody is thinking that uh, the temporary uh, suspension of Nord Stream 2 is, uh, you know, the modern equivalent of Lend-Lease or something like that. I don't, I don't know what. Uh, but to turn to the military situation, you know, again, for all the Sturm und Drang, it's been a little bit of a squib thus far. Um you know, moving more forces um, into the eastern Donbass, you know, sort of moves the threat forward. You know, it positions uh, the Russian forces for um, other things to come. But, um, you know, we see what's happening. We know what's happening. Uh, the Ukrainians are no doubt getting a good picture or, you know, getting much of what we see so they can respond appropriately. And I, I, my still 
fundamental thought about this, which is difficult for me to let go of, um, is that Putin is remains cautious uh, about uh, using his limited resources. I mean, his high-end conventional military sources uh, are not inexhaustible. And all that, you know, I don't know what the troop count, <laughs> uh, including Belarus, is up to, but a large component of that force uh, is still a conscript uh, army that doesn't want to be there and is poorly trained and they got a lot of equipment and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, I think Putin really is reluctant to go full Tonto in this, if full Tonto means an all-out uh, invasion. The latest speculation, which I'll wrap up with, is that there might be, in addition to, you know, uh, increased activity along the line of contact between the Ukrainian army and the so-called separatist forces, that there might be an encircling, a shallow encircling um, moved by the Russians southward, sort of in the space between the front line and Kharkiv. That sort of makes a certain amount of sense, and it would be a, a limited thrust, but it's also a pretty narrow, narrow corridor. It's maybe 25 or 30 miles uh, of space to maneuver in, not a lot of space to put a large force in, sandwiching themselves between... I mean, that's also the, so the sort of line from Kharkiv southward is where some of the best Ukrainian mechanized forces are, the sort of operational reserves that could maneuver to, if there were a, a, a gap in the, the trenches, so to speak, in the front lines. So that's, that's pretty risky too. Um, so, I mean, um, I, I think when you sort of rack and stack it all, the military balance doesn't look as one-sided as people continue to to see it. Um, you know, this is this doesn't really give you any insight into what's going on in Putin's mind. Uh, but um, and he's always, you know, he's been a, a successful gambler heretofore. Uh, but this would be a huge gamble. The ability, and finally to, to conclude with a final reflection on Adalbor's assessment of the sanctions uh, mechanisms, being tentative with, like, if there is a war that is involves serious combat and all the rest of this, if there's a substantial further escalation to come, I'm beginning to see how it's difficult or that it is much more difficult for the French and the, even the Germans to maintain this sort of hedging posture. Mm. Um, I, I, I would, you know, I think Minsk has got one and a half feet in the grave. Um, and uh, I don't think it's impossible to imagine, uh, you know, German public opinion even getting a little bit more hardcore over the course of time. I mean, Putin is kicking sand in their face and, and nobody likes that. Um, maybe 
on this note, I'd like to throw a couple of things out there, and I'm curious what you guys are thinking. So on on the note on on military movements in the future, um, Kharkiv is is big, um, and and as you Giselle pointed out, um, that would entail a bunch of costs. Um, I just saw. Um, in in those um, cost uh, elements, I just saw reports from the Ukrainian intelligence service um, saying that the Russians have um, uh, just ordered forty five thousand body bags. Um, but but with that in mind, what about Mariupol? What about that whole connection along the Sea of Azov, um, and with a long with a long sort of um, uh, attempt to connect. Crimea um, in terms of a land bridge, which they kind of need strategically. That's the first thing, I guess, for Giselle and for others as food for thought. Um, the the second thing, Giselle, that you pointed out is Minsk, and you said uh, one and a half feet in the ground. Um, I think the Russians declared it dead, and and I wonder how Europeans will fare with that because we've we have this history in Eastern Europe of these agreements Minsk is part of it in which we put um, as as your um, esteemed um, AI former fellow um, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick said we put the aggressor and the victim um, on the same stage with the same rights so isn't Minsk dying a good thing and then the third thing to throw out there kind of in the long run is I can already see Europeans and I understand where they're coming from um, saying when when military will be kind of down um, in terms of the situation on the ground, say in a few months, maybe they will start voicing, oh, we need more arms control. We need to figure out both nuclear and conventional how to reinstate arms control. But we sort of know and we have confirmed now time and time again that Russia has no interest of obeying these. So I know this is part of a longer into Cold War discussion, but I think um, this will come up uh, stronger and stronger in the months and maybe year to come. And so how is it different from then in your eyes, both of you and, and I guess our listeners, how is um, arms control approaches um, of Europeans and of Americans, how are they different from then? And are we going to reinstate a debate about trying to push Russia into something that they clearly don't want to pursue? Well, just real quickly, you know, arms control is a question in search, or pardon me, an answer in search of a question and can be applied to any question. So, you know, that's sort of like the sun coming up in the morning to, to a certain degree. Um, again, just to clarify on what the uh, imagined Russian maneuver would be, is that they would not, they would try to avoid Kharkiv as much as possible and uh, to avoid, you know, urban combat and, you know, uh, a city of what, a hundred, uh, a million plus uh, people. So uh, they would sort of try to slip between mm-hmm. the frontline fortifications and avoid uh, avoid the city. So I don't know. Um, I, again, I, it's hard to assess how uh, trafficable and I don't think that's the easiest thing to do. But Dalibor, what do you reckon? 
So, so I have I have three uh, basic reactions to, to 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 what has been said thus far. Um, one is this question of of Minsk dying as you know as a good thing. Minsk was essentially a scheme concocted by Putin to subvert Ukraine as an independent state, and and the fact that uh, he made that Putin made this unforced decision to throw Minsk away. Um, to me, is worrying, right? Like it—it it was a source of leverage in a way for him, or or sort of you know another tool that he could have used to destabilize Ukraine or to to force it, you know, via Germans and French into a settlement that would that would destroy Ukrainian statehood, effectively. So 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 the the, the fact that he threw it away to me is a signal that he's up to no good. Right, that it's if, if, if it's uh, no longer of use to him. Now, he's, always, it, he's always up to no good. But uh, sorry, go ahead. But, but but like there might be even like worse options on the table that that that, that he, he he has in mind. Um, now, second thing in terms of tactical options, um, our colleague at AEI, Leon Aaron, is fond of saying that Putin likes quick, victorious, decisive wars. He doesn't want to have a protracted conflict and. And perpetual shipments of body bags back into Russia that would ha- do him no good. And I worry about what that might mean on the ground, whether you know a scenario in which an effort is made to you know change the government in Kiev with brute force in a one quick maneuver, you know decapitate the government. Whether that that's something that that we should be we should be worried about. The Brits keep saying that the Russians are going for Kiev. You've seen that. Does that fit into your into your kind of? Uh, that, that, that's that's my one of my concerns. But hey, how do you get Kiev without suffering a lot of casualties? Well, you just bomb it, right? Like you sort of do a bombing campaign. Uh, you, you know, targeted assassinations. You know, dirty tricks. Like, not, not. I'm not thinking necessarily about sort of urban warfare, but some sort of you know quick maneuver plus yeah sort of you know bombing to sort of demoralize the the, the population and, and sort of inflict real pain okay and, and my third point is, is is actually a question for Giselle I wonder you know we, we spoke about sanctions we we, we we talked a little bit about sort of the the military aid options that might be on the table I wonder why we in in America and also in Europe are not picking the low hanging fruit of just throwing a lot of money at the problem. Like you know, Pentagon's budget is seven hundred billion plus. Like why can't we just ship one billion worth of equipment to 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 Ukraine overnight? Like I, I know that you know it's 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 complicated. Weapon systems are complicated, but uh, you know, like like with with the COVID vaccine, like if 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 if, if there is one thing America is good at. Is you know throwing money at problems and and actually solving them fairly fairly quickly and 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 so we are talking about these like marginal increments of you know two hundred million here, six hundred million last year. Um, I don't think it's sort of commensurate to, to to the magnitude of the of the problem the West is facing. And I guess the question is, why haven't we done so in the last eight years, right? Why do we keep... We knew the problem was there. Why do we keep these numbers down? Giselle, you're well, responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. Well, having not done so for the past eight years, we find ourselves in a situation where we can't really do so now. Um, the things that the Ukrainians really need, uh, things that 
would uh, offset the Russian advantages in long range artillery and missile strikes, and to a certain degree in manned aircraft strikes. So the Ukrainians, you know, we see everybody sees 17,000 overhead pictures of Russian tank parks. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians, if they had the range, could eliminate those in about 30 minutes. Um, but they just don't have the capacity. They, you know, certainly, you know, the intelligence is available. They just don't have the ability to uh, preventively or preemptively uh, or even just in response to the fact that they're at war right now. They, they can't hold those targets at risk. So giving the Ukrainians the ability to offset uh, the Russian advantages, uh, particularly in different kinds of artillery, would be huge. But those are big systems. They require training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. You know, it's unfortunate that there isn't, uh, you know, a contractor force, at least, that we could uh, deploy there. And it would take a lot of airlift to get it there. Um, or we would have to run the Russian Black Sea blockade, essentially. Um, so we have planes, like we have, like, like the, you know, America is still a global superpower. We would not fly a C-17 into that airspace without a combat aircraft escort. So yeah, we could do it, uh, but we, you know, that would require us to actually to take a side and to be serious. I think that's what we should do. We should have done over the past eight years. Um, it's, it's certainly what we should do uh, if we, you know get out of this alive, so to speak. Um, it, it's as a military proposition, it is not a particularly complex one, but as a matter, it's political willpower. And, it's, and the, the money involved is, as you suggest, <laughs> you know, if you want to put it in uh, COVID relief terms or build, you know, talk, why don't we build back NATO better or build back European security better? <laughs> yeah, the fraction of the cost, really. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and I would add to that apropos. So it has to be air um, because naval blockade in in uh, the Black Sea would would create strategically something that we do not even want to imagine with the complicated role of the Turks and Montreux and how mm, imbalanced they've been in the past with letting ships in um, with uh, with. Uh, Russia being there with that huge capability in um, uh, in the Black Sea in, in Crimea, um, basically being able to with a with a significant reach to start something that would really lead to direct warfare, conventional at least um, with the West. And I don't think anyone is willing to pay that price any in any way. Um, I I don't even want to imagine that scenario. You know, th this is another thing that, that uh, I know we're going to talk about this in an upcoming episode, but allowing the, allowing the Russians to be able to put an economic stranglehold on Ukraine uh, for shipments of, you know, yep. things that need ships, not airplanes uh, is is unacceptable. And for the Turks to sort of, again, you know, flit around, there's a, there's, you know, there's a curtain of iron that's coming down and you're either on one side of it and you're not. I mean, this is forced upon us, 
but to deny that this is the situation and that's emerging uh, is untenable. Maybe this is the the note on which we can think about wrapping up um, this discussion because I think, um, Giselle, what you just said, there's a curtain of iron coming down. I see the same thing. Um, others looking at other regions see the same thing um, with, you know, we focus for years and years about on, and we still do here, on internal um, divisions between um, between Western powers um, and allies. But I think in the next few years, with Russia becoming more threatening, not just in in uh, on the Eastern Front, but we see it now in the Mediterranean, almost clashing with the Americans. We see it in the Kuril Islands with, um, uh, with almost clashes and almost confrontations. So this is becoming much bigger than people anticipated when they were saying, oh, Russia, you know, smaller GDP than Spain. Um, this is a problem to reckon with, and it will divide the world, but also, I think... Um, maybe in a way, in an ironical way, Putin is managing to strengthen our solidarity with each other and disable European powers that were sort of hedging or hesitant to um, to lean towards Russia or be more open towards Russia. Maybe that's a good thing in all this um, terrible scenario or these terrible scenarios that we, we, lay, we laid out here. So... On that note, um... I was I was going to just interject very briefly that I'll, I'll believe it when I see it because what you are describing and 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 the iron curtain that that Giselle is describing are you know things that will have real costs like deflating the oligarch driven asset bubble in London is going to be painful and 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 I'm just I mean I I would very much like to see that willingness to, to incur those costs. And, and, and without that willingness, we really are at the mercy of Putin. I think that's that's something we, that's the argument we should be making. Olaf Scholz is the Conrad Adenauer of uh, the 21st century. Listen, Dalibor, I don't know what you're doing here. I'm trying desperately in desire <laughs> to, to end on a positive note. And then you, <laughs> who is the more optimist of us, is like, we are at the hands of Putin. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Eastern Front, right? The Eastern Front. Yes, it's hard in these times to wrap up on a positive note, but we're doing our best and trying each episode. So stick with us um, from me, Julia Joja, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly. And Dalibur Rohaj. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing rating and reviewing us. Thank you. And until next time, goodbye.